Thank you for listening to Christian Challenge at K-State's podcast. If you'd like to learn more about our ministry, follow us on Instagram or visit our website. Hope you enjoy this episode. All right. Welcome again to Challenge. Glad you guys are here. Um, yeah, we're going to go ahead and, and uh, get settled in. We're getting back. Uh, last week, we took a break from our series and had Nations Night. And uh, tonight, we're getting back into our Unentitled series, walking through 1 Corinthians, talking about we have freedom in the shadow of the cross. And so, um, a couple weeks ago, I taught, and I had a picture of my family, and I want to start out again showing a picture of my wife and I. Uh, I mean, she's awesome. I love to kiss her. She's great. Uh, so, but uh, this is a picture of us when we were young and vibrant. We're kind of old now, uh, old and crusty, but, um, but I, I showed a picture of us when we were younger because I want to tell a story about in our first couple years of marriage, um, we got married. I came on staff at Challenge, and she was a nurse over in Junction City at the hospital there. And so our first several months of marriage, she worked nights, and I worked during the day. So it was kind of this weird, weird deal. And so because working nights, she was tired a lot. She was going back and forth from day to night. So we didn't think anything about it. Uh, but then she started getting some headaches. So we were like, oh, you know, maybe it's just the stress of the job. But those headaches started getting worse had more fatigue, and uh, so we started going to the doctors. The doctors didn't figure anything out. They weren't sure what was going on. Uh, so we went back and forth to several doctors about this pain. She was getting harder to wake up in the morning. She was walking around like she was about 80 years old. It was, it was not a good situation. So right after our first anniversary, we decided, let's just go ahead and go back to our hometown doctor that knew her really well. And so first thing he said, we're, we're getting a CAT scan, of your, of your head just to make sure things are good. And so we walked into the office the next day, and that's what we saw. He says, it's not good. You see this white spot right there? That's a tumor in your brain. And it was like a punch in the gut, right? I mean, we've been married one year, not what you have in mind. We discovered the tumor on a Wednesday drove to Wichita to see a surgeon on Friday and had an emergency surgery on Saturday to get it out of her brain. When we discovered that it was cancer, we did radical, immediate procedures to get it out of her body because it was going to kill her. It was painful. It was a six and a half hour surgery. They had to screw things into her head to sit her up and they cut open the back of her head, and took this out. It was painful. The recovery was painful. She had a moment where she passed out after the surgery. I thought she was going to die in my arms. Scary, emotionally painful. Went in for a second surgery, and she got better. But the procedure was painful. The journey was painful, and it was hard. But even through all that pain, we were grateful for that surgeon. He inflicted pain on her that she'd never known. But we were so thankful. We were writing thank yous. We were like, you saved her life. You got rid of that that was going to save her life. We were so grateful. We never thought he was mean. We never thought he was cruel. He did what was necessary to remove something that was going to kill her and to kill our marriage. And we were thankful 
even though it was painful. Well, tonight we're going to look at a passage in 1 Corinthians 5 that's very similar to this story of Mindy. Instead of a physical cancer that was in her brain threatening to kill her, Paul kind of scans the church at Corinth and he realizes there is a spiritual cancer that is threatening to kill someone in their church and threatening to destroy the church as a whole, to render it ineffective in a community that's lost and needs Jesus. And when we read this passage, sometimes we can read it and we can think Paul's prescribed cure is harsh or mean or judgmental because it's painful. But he's merely a spiritual surgeon seeing what needs to be done. There is a spiritual cancer growing in this body of Christ and he is going to do radical things that might be painful to save someone and to save the community from being irrelevant in their culture. So as we read this passage and you're tempted to rise up and say, this is mean, this is judgmental, think of it through the lens of this is a spiritual cancer that could kill. And Paul is acting out of love in his instructions. And let, us, let Paul's prescription guide us in how he would want us to operate as a body of Christ together that is Jesus Christ's body of Christ here on campus. Jesus' temple to glorify him. He is the head of the church. And so let's see what he has to say about how we relate to each other as a body. It's 1 Corinthians 5. If you remember, Paul has been getting these reports about this church. They've had division. They've had arrogance and pride. And Paul's been writing in the first four chapters correcting those things, how they're thinking. And so now he's going on to a new situation that was reported. He says, it's actually reported there is sexual immorality among you, the body of Christ. And of a kind that even pagans do not tolerate. A man is sleeping with his father's wife. Not everybody gets to preach on incest, but I get to. It's, it's great. So what is, what is sexual immorality? What is this term that Paul uses? It's the term porneo in the Greek. Obviously, we can think of words that come from that. Pornography, right? And so... Formally, when it was formed as a word, originally it was this narrow term that meant prostitution, that you're paying for sexual pleasure. But by the time Paul was around and writing this letter, the, the language had evolved to where it's not as specific. It's more of a general term, speaking of any sort of sexual practice that deviated from the norm in the Scripture. Meaning, sex is reserved for an exclusive marriage between a man and a woman. And this term, sexual immorality, is anything outside of those bounds. Specifically, in this passage, it refers to incest. There is a guy claiming to be a follower of Christ, and he is in an ongoing, sexual, unrepentant relationship with his stepmother. It's like, what's going on in this church, right? And it's not a mystery that this is against the will of God. Leviticus 18 in the Old Testament, and Paul's directives here saying this is sin kind of validates that chapter. There's an outline, several boundaries in Leviticus 18 that God's people are not supposed to cross sexually. And there's a specific verse, verse 8 in Leviticus 18, says, do not have sexual relations with your father's wife, your stepmother. 
That would dishonor your father. It's clear, scripturally. It's not a gray area. And yet, they knew this was going on, and they weren't doing much about it. Not only was it clearly against God's word, but also, he says, even in this sex-crazed, sexually immoral culture in Corinth, even they think it's out of bounds. This was a culture where they expected the husband to have mistresses for pleasure and concubines for his daily sexual needs and a wife to produce children. And they were like, this is out of bounds, man. But the church was doing this. And Paul was horrified over this sin, but really he deals just a little bit with the sin itself. He's more horrified with how the church deals with it. He's horrified how the church deals with ongoing, unrepented sin in their midst. That's what horrifies him. So let's look at verse 2. This would be an easy verse to memorize. This is my kind of verse. And you are proud. It's a short verse. You could memorize that verse. Really easy. But Paul is saying, look, this is what's going on, and your response is that you're proud. There is, in this church, there is a tolerance, even a celebration of sexual sin that is clearly outside of the bounds of Scripture. And there's this sense that the, that the Corinthians say, uh, it doesn't matter what we do with our bodies, our souls are saved, so we can do whatever we want with our bodies sexually. And we know this, the passage Jim's going to teach next, next week, I'm going to say one thing from that passage because it feeds into this. Paul writes to them about sexual immorality, and he quotes one of their slogans twice in chapter 6. He says, you guys are saying, I have the right to do anything in the realm of sexuality. And so at some level, they are saying, this man who's sleeping with his wife, or his stepmom, and though it is clearly against the will of God in the scriptures, and even this sexual crazed culture says it's out of bounds, they say this man has the right to do anything he wants to do sexually. And the church is proud to stand behind that. And this is a slogan in our culture, right? We can do whatever we want sexually. But Paul is horrified that the church would stand behind that slogan. The church that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, bled to purchase. He gave his life to purchase and make this church pure. They say we can do whatever we want sexually. And they're celebrating and tolerating this behavior. It would be like if I took my phone and I had a picture of that CAT scan and I'm like, hey, check out this Check out this tumor my wife has. You know, it, it was only like two to three in America every year got this. She was like a rare cancer. Let me show you a picture. This is awesome. My wife has this great tumor. You would slap me, right? You'd say, that's killing your wife. What are you doing? And you're proud of it. That's what Paul is saying is going on in the church. There is a spiritual cancer killing a person in the church and threatening to totally make the church irrelevant in the culture, and we're, they're celebrating it, and he's horrified because it's killing someone made in God's image and the church that God loves. And so what does he say? He goes on to say, you're proud about this, 
And he goes on in verse, uh, the rest of verse 2. Shouldn't you rather have gone into mourning and have put out of your fellowship the man who's been doing this? For my part, even though I'm not physically present, I am with you in spirit. As one who is present with you in this way, I've already passed judgment in the name of our Lord Jesus on the one who's been doing this. So when you're assembled, remember these are groups of 20 to 50 maybe people in church. And I am with you in spirit and the power of your Lord Jesus is present. Hand this man over to Satan. There's an interesting phrase. For the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved on the day of the Lord. So Paul's writing them. He's in another town a long ways away. He's like, I'm not going to be with you in person. But as I write this letter, someone's going to stand up and read it for their church service with that person in there and with everybody else in there. And he says, as you're reading this, this is my authoritative presence as an apostle of Jesus Christ in your midst. And here's what to do. Instead of being proud, tolerant, celebrating, you should go into mourning. This is a word for a deep anguish of your soul. This is when someone you are close to dies. This is the, the emotion that you feel. It's not a condemning, I'm better than you, you're down there. That's not what it is. It's a broken heart because there is a spiritual cancer eating away at this person's soul. Instead of celebrating it, we weep and we mourn and we are broken. When I found out Mindy had cancer, it was like I wasn't, I wasn't even in my body. It was so, such grief. I remember we got out of the MRI place and, and her parents were with us and they said, we got to get something to eat. And we went to this restaurant and I remember like the waitress was talking to me and I couldn't even hear her. And the menu was in front of me and I was just staring out into space with tears running down my face. And all I could think about is, this is going to kill my wife. What am I going to do? I couldn't think. I couldn't eat. I couldn't concentrate on anything. That is mourning. That is deep soul anguish. That is what Paul is saying. When we find out these ongoing, unrepented sins where people are like, I am going to do it and I am not going to stop. It's not I'm struggling with sin and I'm repenting of it. This is just that I'm going to do it. That is mourning. Instead of being proud, celebratory, tolerant, we go into mourning. We have a broken heart because we know this is killing that person. We don't brag about it. We don't say we're so spiritual. We can do anything with our bodies. That's such a good thing. As a community, together, we mourn that sin. So that's the first thing. We go into mourning. Secondly, Paul says, instead of celebrating, you should have taken action. You should have taken action. And this example that he talks about, this is kind of the last-ditch effort. So this isn't the first time, first thing you do with someone who's struggling with sin, and we'll get to the process of how you get there in a minute, but this is the last-ditch effort of someone who just does not respond. They're not repentant. It's ongoing sin. What do we do? He says, we need to put this man out of the fellowship. We mourn over their sin, and the normal response is to take action, not just to take it lightly and to let it go and say everybody struggles with this. You know, it's not a big deal. 
Here, Paul is to the point where nothing has worked, and so he says this phrase, hand them over to Satan, which is kind of like uh, synonymous with this idea of putting him out of the fellowship. 1 Timothy 1, 19 and 20, this phrase, handing them over to Satan, is used as well. Uh, but it's pretty clear from this passage. It, it just means you're, in some sense, we don't even know exactly what that meant, but they are to remove this person out of the fellowship of believers because they're claiming to be a Christian and they are totally unrepentant, totally stubborn in their sin, claiming to follow Christ, not making any move to follow Christ, and they don't match up. And the idea here is the kingdom or the the church, the body of Christ is supposed to be a representation of the kingdom of God. How we live, how we operate, how we live together and treat one another is supposed to be a taste of the kingdom. We're not perfect, but we offer grace. We live in honesty. We live in openness. All these things, we serve one another. We bear one another's needs. And this guy is just, is not fitting in there. And the idea Paul is saying to remove him out of that. And so, again, does this seem harsh? Does this seem judgmental? Why would he say that? Why would he say that? It doesn't make sense kind of to us, right? So let's look. What does he say? It's because out of love and concern for the well-being of this guy. It's love that is motivating this. So look in verse 5. He says, do this for the destruction of his flesh. That doesn't mean his body. He doesn't want him to be killed. He's talking about this idea that he writes about in Galatians 5, that, that we can live a life according to the flesh, our sinful desires, or we can live a life according to the Spirit. And in chapter 6, verse 8 of Galatians, he says, for those of us who continuously, unrepentantly pursue the way of the flesh, it ends in destruction. It ends in destruction. And so Paul is saying, whatever we do, we've got to do something to get this person out of this pattern of living for the flesh. We've got to destroy this thing that is going to kill him. So the idea is that if he gets pulled out of this community that is full of love and grace and encouragement, and he's out kind of where Satan reigns, so to speak, where it's dog-eat-dog, nobody cares about you, all of a sudden he's going to miss this community. And it's going to be like a splash of cold water in his face, coming to his senses, and he's going to repent of those fleshly things and come back to live by the Spirit and be restored to the community. Paul is saying, this is a radical, last-ditch effort, right? This isn't the first thing, but he's like, we've got to take sin seriously in the body of Christ for this person's sake. We've got to be able to destroy this desire to run after the flesh instead of just say, it's okay, just do your thing. So one, is for the destruction of his flesh, but two, so that his spirit will be saved on the day of the Lord, Paul is saying, look, this is going to be painful, this is going to be hard, but a short-term pain is better than long-term eternal destruction. Just like my wife's surgery, we had to go through some short-term hard pain to get the cancer out of her brain. But we've been married 26 years now. It was worth it. She'd go through it again if she had to. But Paul is saying that this has to happen. The ultimate purpose is to make sure his spirit is saved. He knows this guy is claiming the name of Christ. 
He is claiming to be a follower, but this is just digging his heels in, refusing to follow Jesus. And he's, he's saying, I'm kind of concerned. We need to do something radical to make sure of the reality of his salvation. And in a group this big, I know that there are people who have made a commitment to Jesus Christ. Maybe they prayed a prayer as a kid or whatever, but maybe some of you are in ongoing, unrepentant sin. Maybe you're sleeping with your girlfriend every night. I don't know. Maybe you're out at Aggieville every weekend and people are talking to you and you are unrepentant in your sin and your lifestyle. And I don't know what the reality of your soul is, but Paul is saying, I'm concerned. Don't just bank on a one-time decision way back here when your soul is totally unrepentant. Paul is saying, that's a dangerous place. And we need to take sin seriously. To take drastic measures because eternity is at stake. This guy had made a profession, and Paul is just, we just need to make sure his soul is in the right place, that he would be saved on the day of judgment. Like I said, my wife went through the painful surgeries, but it was worth it. Are we going to be people that love people enough to maybe have a short, hard conversation to ensure a long-term good place for their soul in the body of Christ? So that's what Paul says. He's starting out, unrepentant, ongoing sin in the body of Christ. We have to be serious about it for the sake of the person involved. That, that spiritual cancer is going to kill them. And it could totally make the church irrelevant. That's what he goes on to say in these next illustrations. Verse 6 through 8. He, he gives three illustrations. And they're kind of weird a little bit to us, not to them. But he gives these three illustrations about why it's so important, why we have to take seriously ongoing, unrepentant sin in the body of Christ for our friends or for ourselves. And the first, well, let's read it. He says, verse 6, he says, again, your boasting's not good. Don't you know that a little yeast leavens the whole batch of dough? He quotes this proverb as an illustration. You know, you put a little bit of yeast in there, you work it around, and it doesn't take very long for the yeast to, to ferment the whole dough, to leaven the whole dough. It's like our saying, you know, one bad apple spoils the whole bunch, right? The disease spreads through everything quickly. And he says, we know this is true. In baking, this is just a true thing. And he says, this is the same with sin. It only takes a little bit of unrepentant, ongoing sin within a context of an intimate community of Christ followers for it to start working its way through. You know, you see someone else doing some things and it's unrepentant, it's ongoing, and you're thinking, you know, maybe that's not so bad. And then so you start thinking differently and you start moving toward it and then somebody else, all of a sudden, it's working its way through the entire church. And we're just like the culture after that happens. And so Paul uses this proverb, that's how it is if we don't deal with sin seriously. And then he uses another illustration to kind of have the same point, but with the application to say, get rid of it. Get rid of it. So he uses this quote from the Feast of Unleavened Bread, right? We all know everything about the Feast of Unleavened Bread. You know, we're all experts on it. 
Well, the feast was a seven-day festival. It was part of the Jewish holiday to commemorate part of their deliverance from Egyptian slavery. And you got to go into the process of how they would make bread to understand this. So they would, they would get um, leaven in the bread. They would get it leavened. They would get it fermenting. And that's what makes bread airy, right? So like a sourdough or some bread with lots of air pockets in it. It's light and airy. It's good stuff, right? It's because it's leavened. And so they would take bread, take that dough, knead it up, get it going, bake part of it. But before they would, they would take a little part of that fermented bread out and set it aside for the next week. They'd bake that bread, then they'd make more dough. They'd take that fermented piece, throw it in there, work it through. It'd work its way all the way through. The whole dough would get fermented. They'd take a piece out, do it again. They'd do this for like a year, keeping the same piece of fermented dough. You know that thing was getting nasty by the end of a year, right? It just kind of started stinking. And this was a celebration ritual, but it was also for the health of the community as longer and longer and longer, experts say there's this, this continued risk of contamination in their homes. And so on the Feast of Unleavened Bread, the command was clean out the house, clean everything that is fermented, everything that has leaven in it and get it out, purge the house and celebrate by eating only unleavened bread for a week, and then start the process again. So every year they had to clean out this contamination, this fermentation, for the sake of their community. And so Paul uses that as an example. He says, just like that, we've got to get rid of this fermented piece of dough in our community so it doesn't contaminate the whole thing. They've got to remove it. In, in 1 Corinthians 3, 16 and 17, Paul is talking about the community, and he says, don't you know you yourselves, community together, are God's temple? That God's spirit dwells in your midst? He's giving them this vision in the midst of a pagan culture with all these temples. He says, you are the one alternative. The temple to the true living God. The Spirit of God lives in you. And now he's saying, it's getting contaminated and you're looking just like the world. In fact, you're worse than the world. Where is the hope for lost and broken people when our community is exactly the same or worse because we're not taking sin seriously? As a community, they were called to be distinctive to be an alternative to idolatrous culture around them so people would know what the kingdom of God was like. But they had been contaminated by the sin and by their tolerance and celebration of it and then spread through the whole dough. So he's saying, look, get rid of it. But then he says something interesting here. He says it's interesting in uh, verse 7. He says, so that you may be a new unleavened batch. So that's an uncontaminated batch of dough, unfermented. But he says, as you really are. Isn't that interesting? He doesn't say, get rid of the contamination so you can become this pure body of Christ. He says, get rid of the contamination because you already are. That's who you really are when you gather together. Jesus, our sacrificed lamb on our behalf, has purified us. He has made us pure and uncontaminated by sin. And he's tying this back into the Passover, when in order to escape the wrath of God, 
The Israelites had to kill a blameless lamb and spread the blood of the lamb over their door. And the wrath of God would pass over them instead of killing their firstborn. That's the imagery he's drawing on. And he's saying, that's, Jesus is that. When you have entrusted yourself to him and his blood covers you as a community, we have been made pure. Now act like it. Be what you are. Be what you are. We've already been made pure. And so the application for us, he challenges, his, challenges us here. He says, let's keep the festival. Not like the Old Testament where you get rid of the bread and you eat unleavened bread. He's using that as an example. But he says, now we need to keep the festival by get ridding, getting rid of the wickedness out of our community. This ongoing unrepentant, digging our heels in, get rid of that, repent of it, and then become a community that is marked by sincerity and truth. We live and we celebrate what Jesus did. We live out our true identity as a community by being sincere and truthful with each other. He says it's time to put the mask away. Time to stop faking it. Maybe some of you are walking into a room like this or into your life group and you're saying, you know, live in a certain way like I've got it together, putting that mask on, and inside you've got some sin issues that you're not being honest about. Paul says, stop covering it up. Stop living as a hypocrite. Why do people not like church? What's the number one reason? Because of all the hypocrites, right? He says, be authentic, be vulnerable with each other. It's not that he's saying you've got to be perfect. None of us are perfect. Hang out with me for 24 hours and you're going to see how much help I need. I've got sin in my life that I'm working on. But he says, when we come together to live out this dream of the temple of Christ in our community, we need to have sincerity and truth. We confess our sins to each other. We help each other overcome our temptations. We come alongside each other with accountability and honesty, and we help each other grow. And as we live this out, we are like a shining light on our campus. We are an alternative to the way of life that we have on campus. So he says, get rid of it. We've got to take sin within our community seriously for the sake of those who are in the midst of unrepentant sin, but also for the sake of the purity of our body of Christ and our effectiveness to a lost world. And now we're going to close out the last few verses here. He's clarifying a misunderstanding. He, he had written them a previous letter, which we don't have, and they misunderstood some things. He says, I wrote to you in this letter that we don't know, not to associate with sexually, immorally, uh, sexually immoral people. And so he starts to clarify this. They misunderstood that. He says, I don't mean the people of this world who are, who are immoral or greedy or swindlers or idolaters. In that case, you have to leave the world. But now I'm writing to you to clarify this. You must not associate with anyone claiming to be a brother or sister in Christ, a follower of Jesus, but actually they are living in unrepentant sexual immorality, unrepentant greed, idolatry, slander, 
drunkenness, swindler. Don't even eat with them. What business is it of mine to judge those outside the church? He says, it's not my business to judge people that are not in the body of Christ, but are we not to judge those inside? God will judge those outside. That's his job. But your job is expel the wicked person from among you. He's quoting Deuteronomy 17.7. It's like our job is to make sure we're maintaining a level of accountability and purity for the sake of the church and its witness. So two things he clarifies here. They misunderstood. They were like, so we're not to associate with non-Christians because they're struggling with sexual immorality and drunkenness. They've got this ongoing sin. So we're not going to associate with anybody like that. And Paul says, no. No, that's not what I'm saying. He's like, I'm ongoing, unrepentant sin. It's sexual immorality like we talked about, greed. This is not just the desire for more, but that you're acting out on it, defrauding people, cheating people to get something you don't have. That's that word. Slander, people who are always critical, always tearing down people, always questioning people, gossiping, all those forms of verbal abuse. He says, someone within the church that's like that, get rid of it. Deal with it. Or a, or a consistent drunkard. He says, don't associate with those people, but I'm not talking about the lost people around you. In fact, Paul is saying, no, instead you should have free association. You should have engagement with those people. They're not claiming Christ. They need Christ. We need to engage rather than avoid lost people. Engage them with friendship so we can share the gospel. That's the hope. If we avoid them, how are they ever going to hear the gospel? So he says, that's not what I'm talking about. But he, he is talking about that we are not supposed to have a close association as a community with people claiming to follow Christ but have ongoing, unrepentant sin. It is our role to take sin seriously within the community for those who claim Christ. Now he says to judge, this doesn't mean we're condemning them. It means we're declaring what's true. We are speaking what is true. This is ongoing. This is unrepentant, and I'm concerned about it. And again, this is the last-ditch effort here. This isn't the first step. But when there's continued ongoing community, there's a sense that we take action and we remove them from fellowship. This idea of not associating, it means, this, this phrase means to not mix up together with them or to not associate in a close way with them as a community. So something like maybe a, a life group meeting or something like these ongoing unrepentant sinners they, they, that are claiming Christ, they want the taste of this intimate fellowship together. And Paul's saying, no, that's going to contaminate that body of Christ. It's a hard teaching. It's confusing. But the emphasis seems to be on this exclusion from community gatherings of intimacy, worship, service, having meals together, things like that. But think about our churches. Think about campus ministry. We get this backwards, don't we? We judge the outsiders and we avoid the outsiders, but then we let people get away with everything inside the church. Paul is saying it's backwards. We need to repent 
and take things seriously inside the church and move toward people outside the church. So what do we do with this, right? (laughs) That's the big question. What do we do? Well, if there is someone in your community and you sense this unrepentant, ongoing sin, first we start with our heart attitudes. We've got to take action. So the first heart attitude is 2 Thessalonians 3.15. Paul says, in a similar situation, he says, do not treat them as an enemy, but warn them as a fellow believer, warn them as a family member, right? They're not an enemy, they're struggling. They're a family member, and we come alongside them in love, and we speak to them about this issue. They're not the enemy. Paul's clear on that. Galatians 6.1, our second heart attitude, our goal is to restore them gently. Some people, you know, I want you to be careful if you love rebuke. If you say rebuke is my spiritual gift, that makes me nervous, right? You pull out the six guns and, boom, you know, this is what I see in you. That's not what he's talking about. We do it with gentleness. We love them. We care about them. We're concerned that this spiritual cancer is working their way into their soul. Third thing from Galatians 6, 1 through 3, be humble because you're so aware of your own vulnerability to sin. It's not like I'm up here, now I'm talking to you down here. We're on the same level ground. We are all sinful people and we are all in desperate need of Jesus. And so I talk to you as a peer and a person who's vulnerable and I'm, I'm humble because I know I'm just as vulnerable to those sins. Uh, a good friend of mine used to say, I'm about one decision away from really wrecking my life. That's really true. Fourth hard attitude is we don't just go in and rebuke them and leave them. Galatians 6.2, it says, no, we're in it for the long haul. We're here to help them carry their burdens. We're, we're to walk with them and help them as they struggle with this sin, if they're repentant. So that's the hard attitudes. And then the process, this is from Matthew 18, just a few little quick points before we wrap it up. So Matthew, or Jesus talked about this when he was alive. Paul is just kind of taking what he said and he's applying it to this church. So Jesus is saying if you see this unrepentant sin in the life of a person, go to the person first of all, go to them one-on-one. Don't take it in front of your life group. Don't publicly rebuke them. Go to them one-on-one and have a conversation Say, I'm concerned about this habit in your life and that it's going to do you damage. Concerned. And if they turn, Jesus says, great, you've won the brother back. If they don't listen, Jesus says, take one or two other people along with you. He says, there's more than one witness. I'm not the only one who's seen this in you. Here's this guy and here's this guy. We've seen this as a pattern. It's not just me. We're concerned about you. It's a pattern in your life. Encourage them to repent. Turn to Jesus. He says if they refuse, tell it to the church. And, you know, Christian challenges in a church. Life groups are not a church. But I think in our context, maybe the next step would be go to your life group. Uh, churches were a little different back then. They were small, met in homes. So maybe the next step in our context is go to your life group and, and you talk together, not gossip about people, but figure out a plan. How can we come talk to this person together? How can we talk to them? If, if that doesn't go well, share with a staff person. Maybe share with a pastor in your church. 
to figure out what to do. And if they're still unrepentant, this is what Paul is writing about. Then there's a sense of removing them for their sake so that they'll miss that community and hopefully repent and so that it cleanses the body of Christ. But this is a last-ditch effort. It's not your first plan. Well, you know, I've seen this happen well over the years. We've had lots of things happen. I've seen people go and confront someone. Maybe they were in a situation where someone in their life group, the sin was impacting the other guys in the life group and that it was causing them to be tempted to sin. And they went and talked to these people and they repented and they restored them and it saved them a lot of grief from sin that was going to damage and destroy their lives. And so this is important. Ongoing, unrepentant sin is a spiritual cancer that threatens to kill us. And the band, you guys can come on up as I'm finishing up here. Um, But yeah, we need to think of sin as this spiritual cancer that if it's left untreated, it's going to kill us. It's going to kill us. It's going to spread through the entire body of Christ and it's going to affect not only the body of Christ, but it's going to affect our witness to lost people. If we don't deal with sin in a serious way, it's going to affect how people hear the gospel, how they see Jesus. And so Paul is saying we've got to take sin seriously. We've got to deal with it. And so my prayer is that together as a body, we would take it seriously. Let's pray as the worship team gets ready to lead us. Lord, thank you that you deal with everyday life with us. You're honest with us. You know us so well that all of us are just a few decisions away from wrecking our lives with sin. Um, I could easily see myself with a few choices wrecking my life. And God, I know that's true for everyone here. Lord, I pray for any student in this room that knows they are living in sin and that is digging their heels in against you and refusing to follow you, refusing to repent of sin even though they're claiming you as Lord. I pray for that student. I pray that you would put your finger on their heart right now and you would just remind them this sin is not life. This sin is death. This sin will destroy you and could very well be a soul destroyer. God, I pray that you would open their minds to see the reality. Holy Spirit, do your work. Open the minds of anybody like that. That they would turn from sin and turn back to life according to the Spirit to experience life. Lord, I pray for those of us in our communities that we know people that are just digging their heels in with sin and they're unrepentant. I pray we would have a mourning, broken heart over their condition. That we wouldn't look down on them. We wouldn't judge them, but that we would have a brokenness because they are being destroyed by the deception of the enemy. I pray that we would weep and have compassion And I pray that we would love them enough to walk across campus and have a conversation. Might be painful, 
but a little bit of pain is worth an eternity of life. God, would you give us courage to be the pure body of Christ you have made us to be, to be a beacon of hope on this campus because we live with sincerity and with truth and we're helping each other walk and grow in purity. May it be so. Amen.